Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we bring the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. We are excited to bring to you our second security experts panel discussion for 2019. We brought together a high-powered set of individuals that know security inside and out. As always, we have George Gerchow, the Chief Security Officer at Sumo Logic, and he is also joined by J.D. Hansen, the Chief Information Security Officer at Code42, and Terry Radichill, the CEO at Second Sight Lab. We had a wide-ranging and fun discussion about everything from DevSecOps to privacy, so buckle up and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the live Masters of Data security panel. We should have people joining and rolling in here just a minute. As you're, you're coming on, I'll remind you again later, you can all ask questions as we go along. So please drop in those questions. We'll be able to see those live, and we will try to get to them. With no further ado, I want to uh, you know introduce our very illustrious panel here. So, uh, you know, we'll start on the uh, the West Coast with me. We have uh, Terry Radickel. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, uh, first try. She's uh, coming out of Seattle, and she is the CEO of Second Sight Lab. Thank you for coming on, Terry. Thanks for having me. Okay, and there's this uh, other fine fellow over here to the right, Mr. George Gerchow, who is uh, the Chief Security Officer at Symbologic. Works with me. Welcome on, George. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, absolutely. And last and certainly not least is uh, J.D. Hansen. She is out of Minnesota. From uh, She's the uh, CISO, Chief Information Security Officer at Quote 42. Welcome. Thank you. Excited. I'm very excited to have all of you on. Like I, I think I said in one of my tweets, I'm the only one on here without a C-level title. So I'm, I'm feeling a little, uh, you know. You got the biggest know, I'll, mic. I'll you got that's the- right. That's right. That's why I need the biggest mic. I have to make up for it. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> I was actually thinking before I, I got, got on this today, you know, I spent half an hour yesterday trying to wrangle the Mueller report onto my Kindle. It feels like it has, you know, some uh, applicability here. There's a few things that might cross over. We talked about a bunch of different topics that we wanted to, you know, start off with. And, you know, one of the things that came up was insider threats. And, you know, Terry, you actually posted something really interesting about some uh, insider threats. So why don't you go ahead and uh, start with that? What was it that you posted and why did that interest you? Well, it was really interesting. I didn't get the reason behind it, but someone went into a university and basically took a killer USB and took down a bunch of machines and he... Apparently wasn't a student there anymore. So somehow he got in, you know, so whatever security was there, um, he got in, he was able to do that. And full disclosure, when I started my first business, I used to go back to the university to print some stuff because I didn't have a printer. So it's got, I think it's gotten a lot better, but it still goes to show that, you know, insider threats can come from a lot of different places. You don't know where. JD, from your, your viewpoint, I mean, what, what, what does that look like to you? Because you, you had suggested this as a topic even before we, uh, you know, when we were planning this, from your perspective, what are you seeing right now and how does that concern you? First and foremost, the, the trend that I'm sort of seeing right now is gotten good at some of the perimeter defenses. And so as those get better and better, the bad guys still have to get away in. And it, it's scary to think, but what we're sort of seeing is that 
a lot of times like internal people are being recruited by bad actors outside when you can't come in through the front door and those things are locked down in order for them to actually get a foothold in their environment, they'll target individuals within a company to essentially work for a bad actor and then allow certain things to happen. There's even places like right now on the dark web where you can go. So let's pretend you work for some large company. You can go and say what information that you know of, and then also talk about what access you currently have. And malicious actors can sort of bid on that and say what they're willing to pay you in order to get that so that they can get a foothold within an environment. So that to me is really scary. Up until this point, we've talked a lot about, you know, the external threat coming in, people we don't know, people that aren't part of our own organization. But I sort of see a trend where this insider issue is going to become larger and larger as our perimeter defenses get stronger. It's a little scary to think about it that way. What do you see, George? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I think from, from our viewpoint, there is no perimeter anymore, really. You know, I think the days of doing like a hard shell, soft center security type approach just doesn't work, especially like when you're in the cloud. I think you want to do security from the inside out. And that addresses a lot of these things. But to JD's point and Terry's point, it's it's always comes down to the people, right? Oh my gosh, I broke the golden rule. My phone is ringing Come in the on, background. George. I told you I was going to be the weakest link. Jeez. Okay, I'm so how do I them. kick you off? I think I can kick you off right here. <laughs> Speaking of the insider threat, so but it, it, it can come from anywhere, you know? And, and, and I'll tell you, one of the tough things, like especially being at a software company, and I'm sure you know both of you can relate to this as well, is that developers usually have like godlike rights, you know? I mean, yes. to be able to innovate and get things done. And so you want to trust them. And, and their point is always like, we're the ones working on things, so we should be trusted. And it's like, no, you know, because it's not even just about trust. A lot of times it's also about mistakes. You know, like you remember the outage that happened in US East and AWS, I think about two years or so ago, it was a fat finger, which is mind blowing that something like that would happen in AWS. But it's not even just a malicious activity. It's also someone making a mistake because they have too many rights. Hmm. JD, some of the things you mentioned about somebody actually putting themselves up for sale on the on the dark web, which you know sounds like the start of some sort of a movie, but Black Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> is that going to be very, very technical people that are doing this, or is this something that, you know, uh, because it seems like you'd actually have to have some level of knowledge and skill set that I mean even know what the dark web is, much less how to post something on there. Is this a is this really a technical threat from people like developers and security professionals or you know, or other or other people getting into this? I think other people are getting into it and and here's why. So I did an interview during RSA and the conversation that took place was actually kind of fascinating to me is it's not necessarily people going out and looking for places that they can do this, but it's also people being targeted. So this particular individual was telling me the story of how the malicious actor externally was like targeting lonely developers with pictures of attractive women Hmm. to incite some sort of engagement. Sorry, George. (laughs) (laughs) And then like from there, a step further of like, well, what access do you have? And moving beyond that, I think it's kind of pervasive, the tactics that are being used right now. And I want to come back to the point that I made about perimeter. I, I totally agree with George on there is no perimeter. It's almost like 
as our controls get better. So whether it's like the endpoint controls or the controls in the cloud, like our controls are actually getting better from a security standpoint than what they were, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, so as, as our controls get better, it's harder for malicious actors to get in without like that, that compromise on the insider side. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it seems like the, what you're getting at is the, is we're getting better on the technology side, but the humans are still the weak point, which shouldn't be surprising. <laughs> it was funny though, Ben, did you hear Terry? She's like pointing me out as one of those lonely developer types that could get scammed by the pictures of like, women. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is I, I, I worked selling with to the government and working with on government contracts for years and years and years when I lived in D.C. And I remember there was a period of time where there was um, all these, you know, kind of questionable LinkedIn profiles and you see from different things. And it was that, it was that same thing, you know, uh, you know, attractive women reaching out, trying to connect, asking questions. And I remember being warned about that. It was the oddest thing. And I mean, it's, it's fairly pervasive. So, I mean, and I think I've figured that's been going on for a long time with, you know, intelligence agencies. So now it sounds like you even have organizations that are more in it for the money hackers that are basically doing the Absolutely. same thing, which is a little scary. I guess like the flip side of that is, okay, so you're a CISO, what do you do? <laughs> it is a good question. I mean, I, I think just being able to vet things out in a deeper way with people, you know, I, I think a lot of times someone will line up, you know, connect all the dots, but it's conversation after conversation after conversation and seeing them in different social settings. So for example, whenever, you know, we recruit somebody, at least I'm, I'm just speaking pretty much for our team we put them in all kinds of different social situations, you know? So we do the hardcore interviewing, the technical piece of it, but it'll be like lunches, sporting events, anything to, to sort of see how people behave, how they act, have them talk about, you know, competitors and everything else. Because what you're looking for is really someone very ethical. Like the conversation we were having earlier uh, before we got on this, you know, where JD and I are kind of doing an employee exchange. <laughs> we can leave it at that. Is that what you want to call it? <laughs> Was she getting a return? <laughs> yes. We're working on that. I owe. Okay. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> but <laughs> but so so you know, this gentleman happened to be super ethical, right? Like he demonstrated that yesterday by telling the truth, you know, and coming out with it. He could have given, you know, any kind of, of fictitious answer or said he didn't want to say, it, but the relationship was more important. So I think when you put people in different social settings, you sort of see how they behave. The hiring process, yes, you want to move quick on talent but you also want to see how they behave in different situations. Hmm. Terry, what, what do you think? So I think this gets into one of our other topics and something I feel kind of strongly about when it comes to the cloud. I was one of the early people to say, hey, I think some companies could be more secure in the cloud because there are all these controls you can put in place a lot more easily than you can in the traditional environment. I came through um, up as a software developer for 25 years. I also ran my own company and hired contractors and did the whole, you know, mini data center sort of thing. And so I looked at the cloud and all the companies I contracted at, and I, I saw a lot of benefits to that. In the cloud, you can put controls in place. You can put monitoring like George's company does. Like, you know, you can, your company does, you can put monitoring in place to trigger actions when people are taking mm. actions that look a little suspicious. It's also a lot easier to design segmentation into and segregation of duties into your processes and into your applications, even with microservices. So you don't give one person all the code 
And you can do things like separate the people from the data, which is something that Amazon talks a lot about. So there's a lot of things you can do with, with cloud technologies and deployments to kind of monitor what people are doing and set up guardrails for what they're doing. So, I mean, for at risk of asking the obvious, you know, why is that easier in the in the cloud? Is it more because Amazon and Azure and GCP have kind of opened up kind of a level of controls and automation that you don't have if you build it yourself or what, what's really, truly different? That is really the difference. So when I looked at the cloud, I saw a big automated platform and, and I've seen, you know, companies try to do this internally themselves with their own internal clouds. But the thing is, Amazon's been doing this for 10 years. They specialize in it. They've built this completely automated configuration management platform. So everything that you can do with the push of a button, you can write code to do that. You can automate your deployments. A lot of security problems are from, you know, human error. George mentioned one, you know, S3. I was still wondering why there was not some sort of automation there. I'm always curious. But, but you know, the more we can automate, you don't hear about a ton of mistakes from Amazon because there is so much automation there. I recently read an article said they had one person in their sock because that one person babysits the automation and if something goes on, then they call other people. Hmm. So, the, so the automation of the whole platform is what brings all the power. Uh, you could definitely do the same thing internally, but just think of all the things you would have to build internally to match that platform. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, JD, from your perspective, what do you, is that does that resonate with you? What they've said? Yeah, absolutely. We can have both worlds going on. We have a lot in the cloud, but then we also have kind of our own cloud. So we have from like a customer environment, like pieces that are like part of our own cloud, and then we have like development pipelines and whatnot in the different cloud platforms to run the business. We run everything software as a service, so we know that those are running in some cloud. And from a security perspective, like we, you know, exactly what Terry said, like we are 100% focused on automation and putting our security controls in place from an automated way. So we're, we're using Cloud Custodian, which is a Capital One homegrown solution. Oh, Terry loved that. <laughs> that was my alma mater. I, I helped Capital One move to the cloud. Awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we're using Cloud Custodian. We love it. It's free, open source. It's great. We've written a ton of Cloud Custodian policies so that as our development team is pushing stuff into production, Cloud Custodian is seeing all of that. And, you know, we have we have two groups. We have a tell them that this is bad and they should go and fix it. And then we have the group of policies that take action. And slowly, we're getting much more into the take action group of policies. So things like an unencrypted S3 bucket should never, ever happen. And so if a developer makes a mistake and deploys something, it deploys an open unencrypted S3 bucket, Cloud Custodian will see that. In a matter of minutes, it'll just tear it down and the risk is gone. And so like that level of automation, I agree with Terry, is like, that's why the cloud is much more secure because we can't do that in the traditional sense. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it kind of applies across the board because you, you lay a foundation uh, of that kind of automation and tool sets, then it lets you focus more on actually getting it done rather than, you know, going out there and inventing all the tools. That, that makes a lot of sense. There's also another piece to it though, Ben, which is it's also a chance to refresh because hmm. in a traditional data center, you know, you're always bolting things on. You're, you have applications that are coming in and going into this traditional data center, you're bolting security around that. 
And you never really have many opportunities in your career to have like a brand new start. Like, yeah, you can build a new data center, but you're still moving the same applications over to it. You went from P to V, right? I mean, I worked for VMware, did security there, but we pretty much lifted and shifted the same shit that we had in these physical images into these virtual images. Mm. The same services running, everything else. It wasn't a opportunity to, to really cleanse what you're doing and start from scratch the right way. And I think cloud provides that quite a bit. But one thing I'd love to know from the two ladies, which neither one of them mentioned yet is, yeah, you can put more controls in. And I'm totally down with that. And I think that that's a great way to keep people from doing things. But again, you know, we said it, JD, you and I talked about this. It's about the people. So what are you doing now to start taking a look at the profile of people your company's hiring to try to ensure that someone who is a little shady doesn't get brought on board that's going to sort of sell off information and access? Great question. Or what could you do? Yeah, what could you do? I mean, today, I think it's like the traditional stuff related to like background checks and whatnot. You know, once a person is in, this is a feels control. It's not like a hard technical control, but we put a ton on company culture around security. And so like our CEO is talking about security all the time. This is kind of cool. We just launched a security ninja program. And so we have a series of different color belts and everybody in the company, it's kind of like do it at your own pace and everybody can go through like certain belts. So I'm about, here's mine. I'm a green belt right now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and it was cool. Like we, our first quarter, we just launched it in January, our first quarter. We had the goal of getting 20 people in the company through their white belt. And we had 121 that wanted to do it and sign up and go through it. And, wow. and so people were like really excited about like the security space and learning more aspects of it. And there's a component of there of like, you know, you you have to hold other people accountable to the same standards that you are. So, you know, are bad people probably going to get hired? I would guess so. But do we have enough of the cultural elements in place to try to find it and correct it? Hopefully. Hmm. That's awesome. I really like that answer. Um, I think this is a challenge. And I think the challenge comes from the fact that we all want to trust people. and We all want to be nice. And I think some people are are maybe a little more suspicious than others because things that have happened to them or things they know, like they work in security. I think exposing more developers through training and more, you know, more people in the company, just like JD saying, like to what is, what should be happening and what might be a problem and what could happen, you know, the potential risk will help people, you know, as a group collectively kind of correct bad behavior or point it out. For example, I heard this in a class. I don't know if it's true, but another student said that Edward Snowden was a really nice guy and he asked to borrow someone's key and that's how he got the documents. And the other person probably felt awkward and like, oh, he's a really nice guy. I should just give him this credential, right? And I've seen that happen with developers in QA and they don't understand the potential or the risk. And, And so just instilling that culture exactly like JD just said, I think it's really important. Now I'm envisioning those kind of posters from World War II, like loose, loose lips sink ships. And, and what's, what's the equivalent? For? <laughs> but it's true though, Ben. I mean, Ben, do you remember, I don't know if you, I mean, you and I've worked together for a long time, but do you remember my first day at Sumo Logic and a joke that I played by chance? Yes. I have a vague memory. Something about a, uh, yes, yeah, sticky on your computer about, not, I don't remember. You, you tell the story. I do remember something. Yeah. 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 So I got hired March 31st. 
And I knew I was at the right company for a couple of different reasons day one. The first one was that the security onboarding was literally eight hours long. Do you remember how brutal that used to be, Ben <laughs> yeah. Jones? Yeah. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is too much, by the way, like way too much. But, you know, it showed the commitment to the company on security. It didn't matter if you were in sales or where else. So at the end of the day, I took a sticky note and I wrote all of our applications on it. And then I put fake passwords next to them all and I stuck it on a monitor right. and I went home that night. <laughs> well, the next day happened to be April Fool's, right? And so that <laughs> night, I mean, at least 50 people emailed our CEO going, do you realize that the new security guy is an idiot? He has a sticky note on his laptop, right. you know, like what's going on here? So the next day I walk in the office and everyone is avoiding me like the plague. Like I, I could have had like the bubonic plague. And I, I walk up to our, our, our founder, Christian, and I was like, hey, are we still on for drinks tonight? And he's just looking at me like he wants to be nowhere near me. And a marketing lady walked up and she goes, hey, do you realize that everyone can see all your passwords, all your applications on that sticky note? And I was like, don't worry about it. I'll have it up there for two weeks once I memorize it and I'll take it down. And finally, she freaked out and everyone started freaking out so hard that we had to bring the joke back in or CISO actually discovered it because the very last password I had, if you were reading this, you are duped. And, uh, but it, it, it made me so <laughs> proud though, in a way, because like JD was saying, that's hard for people to turn other people in and to hold other people accountable. But so many people at Sumo Logic were like, the new security guy's an idiot. Look what he's doing. Look what he did. You know? And I thought it was really cool that that, that actually happened. Awesome. You know, when you think of it, it's like you, you created buzz about security and there's no bad part about creating buzz about security, right? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Some exposure. A lot of people didn't like me for it, but oh well. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> kind of a fun story too. So when, when I started, we actually didn't have a training awareness video related to security. And we looked out there and there's like a bunch of like really old dry ones and nobody really liked them. And people would have done it and we would have checked the box from a compliance standpoint, but nobody would have learned anything. And so we ended up buying a bunch of Star Wars costumes off of Amazon and we filmed our own security awareness training. <laughs> I got my boss, the CEO, to dress up as like Obi-Wan Kenobi and do the opening. And um, I, I recruited my little seven-year-old and she was Yoda for parts of the video. So it, it, was, it was a blast. But, but again, like... I love it. I got to show you it. But again, like, you know, you're, you're creating buzz in the office about like, well, what are they doing? What are they talking about? Like, oh, what's, you know, what's this topics about security? Plus you're like, you're, you're doing security in a way where it's like fun and it doesn't have to be dry and scary and people like really actually want to know more. So I, I think anytime that you can do that and create buzz is, is probably a good thing. I think that's great. And I think what you guys are talking about, the thing I like, it's a lot of it is about culture because, you know, having uh, worked with various agencies, let's leave it at that. Uh, I mean, the way that they would enforce these sorts of things would had to, you know, it ended up being so draconian. There's reasons why, <laughs> you know, that we can actually do this, that it doesn't involve things being strapped across your chest or, you know, having to deliver your taxes to the, you know, tax documents to the company, we're in a good space. One thing I'm hearing for you guys too, having, you know, been in that space myself before, I mean, a lot of these things that make people vulnerable are cultural things. It's like they're having a hard time at home or they're struggling, they're stressed out, they're burnt out, they're, you know, having financial issues. And, and those things are much more likely to be uncovered by a culture that's caring and that cares about its people, you know, so it does make a lot of sense. Now, one thing before we go on, just everybody that's listening, you can ask your questions live. Take advantage of that. We will answer them. Any embarrassing questions go only to George. The other uh, appropriate <laughs> ones go 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, so so on to the uh, you know next talk because I think it kind of relates directly to this. I I had the pleasure of interviewing on the podcast one of, basically the first one I published was with Bill Burns. He's a chief trust officer over Informatica, and I remember he talked about what he does there and what he did at Netflix, and he talked about this idea of guardrails that. You know, so security teams are typically the the team of no, right? It's like they tell everybody no, and then nobody likes them. But you know, that doesn't really work in a you know this kind of fast moving modern environment. So he he had this idea of guardrails that he tried to tell them, like, look, if you stay within this area, you're good. If you go outside, then we we got to talk. And he was trying to figure out ways to you know make that relationship more productive, where it feels like the security teams actually. Uh, you know, helping accelerate, you know, company innovation, not holding it back. So, JD, starting off with you, I mean, what 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 have you seen there? I mean, does that resonate with you? I mean, what do you do to kind of maintain that image of security as is not just a team of no? Yeah, good question. I think this is critical, and it's team of no thing. It just doesn't work. So, like, you could try it at any organization, and no matter what, people are just going to go around you and you're not going to have visibility to it and you're not going to see what you need to see and you're not going to be engaged in the places that you need to be engaged. So starting out, it just doesn't work. Don't do it. Figure out, like for me, this was really important for me. Like I had to, and this is not a calculation. And so you have to really figure out like what the risk appetite is for your organization. And then you have to take that into that guardrails concept of like, okay, well, what is our risk appetite and what are the guardrails that we actually need to have in place in order for the company to move as fast as we can, still maintaining the risk level that we need to. So one of the things that I did when I started here at Code42 is we talked about like, what do we want to be known for as a security company? Like when people talk about us, like how do they, how should they be talking about us? Like, what do we want to hear? And we came up with like, you know, not things like, oh, that, you know, we we do really great security. Like we want to be supportive. We want to be enabling the business. We want to be helping drive the business forward. And all of those things are things that we needed to like think about, make sure we have the right security things in place, but like let the team move as fast as they can. One of the guys on my team talks about it as like, if our all of our security controls are working like they should, like nobody should even know that they're, that they're mm-hmm. there. Like, I mean, it, it should just be like part of their every day and it should be in the background. And the analogy he uses is like, it's like a brake pedal on a car. Like if, if you do something really stupid and you find yourself going like 95 down a highway, like you're going to need it and you should step on it and it will be there. But for the most part, like you shouldn't know that it's there until you need it. So um, I think this is interesting. I think there's a lot of people who say, well, there's the old school model of just, you know, get in the room with the security folks and have the meeting and they say no at the end of the project. And pretty much that's going away as far as I can tell. There may still be people doing it, but I've, I've heard just a lot of people saying that just doesn't work. Um, I remember at a particular company I was at where I was trying to deliver a project. We got in a room with a guy I'd worked there for maybe three years. And he's like, I have to approve everything before it goes to production. And I'm like, I've never seen you before. So... <laughs> I don't know. I've been building and you know leading a team, deploying things to production. We know that kind of doesn't work, right? So the idea of guardrails is great, but sometimes what I see, and I teach a lot of security people, right? And when I say this, they all nod their head. The DevOps and the developers got there first. The security team didn't really think the cloud was going to come in, and they come in after, and they're trying to implement all these controls, and then there's like conflict, right? And my belief is twofold. One, for all these companies who say they don't have enough security people, 
I say, yes, you do. You just haven't trained them yet. There's a whole bunch of developers. There's an army of security people, really smart people who could understand this. And the reason they're fighting against security is because they don't understand it. Developers need to know why. They need to know why you're doing things. They don't know all the security stories that we've all heard in security a million times. My belief is that if they get trained, they hear those stories, if they understand the reasoning behind these guardrails, they will actually help build and support those guardrails. So yes, guardrails are really important. And I think we need to enlist more people in building them and helping put them in place Mm. and understanding them. Good. George, jump in. I think a lot of it's empowering developers. I totally agree with that so much besides the rest of the company. Like, like for example, it, it can be project-based. We're, you know, we're standing up, JD and I talk about this all the time, FedRAMP. <laughs> I had to mention FedRAMP. <laughs> it was just coming. So no. <laughs> we're setting up this federal environment and we were looking for new tools to do code scanning. And this is something that I've seen at a lot of different companies I was with to where the security team has the budget, but then they go out and select the code scanning tool. And then they're like, hey, developers, here you go. This is the tool we selected. Well, developers are going to turn around and, and do exactly what Terry just said. Why, first of all? Why that tool? How does it work? You know, and, and so for us, we were like, look, we got the budget. These are the five we recommend. Why don't you guys go and test them out with us? And then you recommend to us which one you'd like to use. And, and then that way it empowers them, you know? So now we have the guardrail in, which is going to be the tool. We get to audit and monitor the tool, but they're the ones that feel empowered because mm. they were selected that they rolled it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, you know what, George, you bring one thing to mind that I, I love to get um, all of your reactions on is I definitely spent a lot of my career on kind of the more the operation side and, and uh, you know, particularly kind of the DevOps movement. And one of the things I, I definitely saw is that early on, you know, DevOps was this idea, okay, you got these dev people, you've got these ops people, and then you got to get them to work together. But I think what I've seen over time, and particularly in, you know, organizations that really kind of went all the way to the cloud and 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 their microservices, like all the like, you know, modern whatever, is instead of there being this melding, in some sense, uh, you know, engineering started to take over because in, in some sense, what the cloud did is it reduced, it's kind of back to what we were talking before, it reduced the barrier to entry. It made it easier to get up and going. And to that point, you know, these these engineers are smart. You know, if they can learn a subject, then they can go implement it. So in some sense, what you saw is you saw traditional IT, they might, you know, screamed at the top of their lungs, shadow IT, but at the end of the day, they were being sidelined. They were being pushed to the side you were seeing things like site reliability engineering and disciplines like that, where the development team was actually directly taking over what you might normally consider operations. Now, what I'm hearing you guys talk about sounds a little bit is like a way for security to ma- ma- maintain relevance and, and maintain a partnership that maybe in some, sometimes uh, IT operations didn't do, you know, kind of like five plus years ago. So what do you guys think? Does that resonate at all? Maybe starting with you, JD. Do you feel like there's that tension going on or is it is it different than it was for like, say, what a CIO was having to deal with 10 years ago? Honestly, like it feels like tension that you maybe feel is just the, the change in responsibility and accountability. Hmm. So a lot of times like people talk about DevOps and you take these ops people and you embed them with engineers and they're off to the races. And one of the core components of DevOps that we sometimes forget about is like it's a mindset shift around accountability and ownership and the only tension that like I sort of see is like when we do all this and we do it really quickly sometimes like scrum masters and POs are like 
wait a minute, what am I responsible for now? And where am I supposed to go? And just that lack of like knowledge around like, what am I now accountable for? Because in the old world, like they just had to, I, I use this analogy all the time. They had to build the house and like build the house as fast as you can and then add features to the house mm-hmm. as fast as you can. And somebody in the ops world would come and clean it and they would update servers and they would patch vulnerabilities. And now with it all being under one umbrella, it's just more about like education as to like what they're now accountable to and now own. They own it all. You got to build the house. You got to wash the tables. You got to clean the floor. Well, you know, the only, I had to push back on that a little bit on that analogy, JD, because I think the way I usually felt about the developers is I, you know, had this great house. I decorated it really well as an operations person. And those developers moved in, moved in their nasty ass futon that hadn't been cleaned in 10 years. So I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, George, you know, have you managed to balance that yourself? Because I I think we do, as Sumo Logic, we have a, you know, it's a pretty productive relationship, but I don't think that was a given. No, it was was definitely not a given. Because what typically happens, and we, we started talking about this early on, is developers sort of rule the roost. SRE team, like you mentioned, they're just going out and doing things at high speed. But if you can start getting them to think about security first. And then I think it solves a lot of those problems. But I actually believe most of the issue is with the traditional security team. In my mind, your job should be to get the hell out of the way as fast as possible. If you can provide the right guardrails and provide the right system, you should be almost transparent and seamless because you're really auditing things. And I'll give you a great example. And this is something really dumb that we were doing at Sumo, which was on my team. Whenever someone wanted rights, you know, or escalated rights or permissions or rights to do something, it would have to go through us. And one day we sat around and looked at each other and we're like, why in the hell are we reacting to this? You know, like, why shouldn't the manager decide if this this individual gets those rights or not? As long as we're auditing everything, we're slowing things down. We don't know. We don't know exactly what rights that person needs or doesn't need. So we handed that off. And that's kind of been our team motto for a while now, which is get out of the way as much as you can. Like if you have the right controls in place, if you have the right processes and procedures in place, you can get out of the way and everyone else in the company can sort of be an arm to security, especially developers. But it takes a while to get there for sure. Because, you know, especially like at our company, you had the SREs at first rolling out like all the different vulnerability products and doing all the patching and everything. And then it's like, well, who's really supposed to do that? And eventually we sat back and said, hey, let's not be let's not have any pride. If they're doing the job and they're doing it well, great. Let's just audit it and then make sure that they're doing it properly and then give them some guidance when it's not. And it's become so effective, man. It's like, it's like one big security family, but it does take a minute or two to get there. And usually it's the traditional security team's fault, not the developer's hmm. fault. I think that's interesting. And I, I remember, you know, one of the things we, we have, we basically already, you know, delved into that, this idea of DevSecOps. And I, I remember when uh, that fir- term first started coming up at Sumo, I was having, you know, you know, PTSD flashbacks to I got into a Twitter war with somebody over at HP about whether you could call it rugged DevOps or not. That was, you know, the old term. And and it's like, well, DevOps should be rugged. And I was like, whatever, dude. <laughs> you know, Terry, I'll, I'll let you, you start with this one. So I think there is some back and forth about DevSecOps as a term. But do you think what we're describing here is is basically DevSecOps or is there, is there there's something else there? There's a lot of arguments over different terms. And I also feel like, yeah, there's also these terms that become popular like Scrum and then Scrum Master. And then pretty soon all these consultants jump on the bandwagon and become a Scrum Master and they completely change it to a way that makes my job hard sometimes. <laughs> 
I don't do that anymore. But so I, I don't like to argue necessarily about semantics. I like to think about what are we trying mm-hmm. to do here? We are trying to bring security into the environment. And I, I personally think about DevOps and DevSecOps as using automation. I don't think it's going around security, you know, or, or other things I've seen that term used for and people with unicorn pictures on conferences that aren't very nice. You know, I don't get into all that. I just think let's talk about what we're trying to do here and let's bring everyone together. I'm a big believer coming from both the security side and from the developer side that we kind of need people merging and working together. But I also like what George says, which I think is really important. That doesn't mean developers do everything. You still need someone externally auditing. You need that segregation of duties and an external kind of auditing team, but definitely coming together and working on everything and and focusing on, you know, what are we trying to do versus a particular term? If someone likes DevOps or Dex, you know, whatever they want to call it, I don't care as long as we're getting security in the pipeline. No, I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. One thing that this leads me, you know, question as well, you know, partly what we're talking about, I know George, you and I have talked about this, but you know, before is it, it seems to me that if we're going to achieve this vision, you're, you're partly looking for like different hiring and recruiting profiles too. I know the security profile, the people that I used to work with on early in my career seem to be very, very different than what the kind of person that is going to, you know, really thrive on a team today. So JD, maybe talk a little bit about that from your perspective. Like when you're recruiting people on your team, I mean, what kind of profiles are you looking for now to, to kind of build the modern security team? They need to know code. We've done a lot like within my team where one, we're hiring for people who actually like can know code and we'll put them through like a little red team exercise to see if they can find like vulnerabilities and whatnot. And then in addition to that, like the people that are part of the team today, we've started an initiative where we're all learning Python. And so January, we kicked it off by mid-year, everybody has to get through a certain training. And then by end of year, Everybody has to use their newfound Python skills to automate a portion of their job. And this is a team thing. Everybody on the team is doing it. Whether or not you find yourself looking at code during a day, it doesn't really matter. It's a skill that we all feel like is important and that we need to have going forward. And so that's kind of how we've changed our makeup, like what we're going after. I, a guy on my team actually wrote a blog about what we're up to how important we think it is for security people just to have that skill set. Harry, particularly considering your background, what do you think is more likely to happen? Security people, you know, learning code or, you know, developers basically going over into security? I mean, what, what are you seeing? Well, I do think that it's really important to have developers as part of the security team, but I also have a little bit of a different perspective because there are people who have, you know, 20, 30 years of security experience and they have invaluable knowledge. They know deep security, things that you know you don't necessarily even get to in the cloud, like you know, crafting packets to bypass um, firewalls and, and other sorts of deep security knowledge that you don't want to just throw away because they don't know code, right? So I like to think of these people as product managers mm. or you know, someone who's gonna come and say, here are the rules we need to follow, go build it for me. And they can explain to the developers, they have a lot of value. And, and sometimes the, the problem I see with people who say, I do cloud security, is that they know the cloud platform security tools. They don't necessarily know security, like cybersecurity, all the training you get from, from various organizations. So I think having those people there is super valuable. They just kind of start to play a different role. And I don't think they necessarily all have to be hmm. a programmer. Sure. 
no, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. George, what what do you like I said, you and you and I have talked about this before. I mean, what how do you how do you look at it? I'm on both sides, you know, like I I look for developers first because I think that they're they're hungry depending on on what the task is. So for example, you know, when we were building out our team, we went after developers to automate as many inefficient things that were happening not only across our team but cross-functionally within the company, which, by the way, that really helps embed security into the company. Like, for example, we just went away from WordPress and went to Craft, and there was like this whole new public-facing website initiative, and one of our guys, our automation guy, really helped lead that charge. So now the marketing people are just like, wow, this guy is so good, and security team is so awesome and on our side. And so I I do think that you need at least an automation bucket or, or a DevSecOps bucket on your team, whatever you want to call it, that has coding skill. But I think it depends on the position. Because like the lead up our sock and, and you, you know him, you know, you know Roland by now, or you've seen Roland. I think sometimes, especially at a software company, you need rigor. And so for the sock, I was looking for people with military mm. backgrounds. Uh, so people who could come in, get a mission and execute on that mission at all costs. And so I think it just depends on what the positions are. I do think you need a lot of security knowledge, but I also think that you need to have coding experience. And then the other one too that we haven't mentioned yet, which by the way, you know, I'm so lucky to be, you know, on this panel today is the capability to talk and sell and express yourself and market your department. I think now as being a security leader, you have to have evangelistic skills. You just do to either recruit people onto your team or to, to sell your initiatives across the company, all the way from the board to e-staff and everything else. I think it's so important to be able to talk. And that's where the risk comes in sometimes with developers is like even the developers I've brought onto my team, they can't talk, man. These are vampires that sit around with all the lights off in the middle of a room that don't want to ever talk to people, you know, which is cool with me because I get along with those folks. But there has to be a balance amongst the team of rigor and development skills as well as evangelistic skills too. No, I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense because I, I know when I first started out in my career, I, I usually thought of the security people as they were the ones who pressed a button on the scanning you know, software. And then set there while it ran, and then gave me like a thirty-page output that they didn't understand themselves. So you know, <laughs> we've uh, you know advanced a lot, a lot beyond that. But uh, no, I I think that makes a lot of sense because I I've seen you in particular, George, the recruiting you've done. On Thanks, the team. JD. And, I mean, you bring on uh, a lot of different. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, something you said, you know, Terry, really, we stuck with me. I, I was a product manager for years, and I and I think you. You're, you're absolutely right because in in some sense you're you're borrowing the best of a kind of a more of an agile uh, software engineering model is that you have the people that you know are the subject matter experts that come in and and you know provide that guidance and then you have people that actually go execute it and you know people that run it and people that are thinking of you know talking to the outside world and you got to have all those different skill sets and it, it makes a lot of sense and it seems like that's that's maybe how things are changing because as companies are taking security more seriously, they have to have a more broad, complete approach to it. Is that, does that resonate? Yeah. So I'll go first too, because I wrote a note of that, Ben, and I'm glad you brought that up. When she said PM, that's exactly when we look at things. Again, that code scanning uh, project we had, you should mm-hmm. be like a PM. You have the requirements. Okay. So you have the requirements around security and what the best possible outcome can be according to like what JD said as well too, for the business. And so if you just go to like development or other lines of business and say, these are the requirements, how you get there, I don't care. I'll I'll consult with you if you want. I'd love to. I'd love to be part of this. But these are the requirements. And then let them go out and choose the best way to get there because they're going to know their line of business way better than you are. 
so I think a PM approach is actually a really smart way to put it and a good stance to have. You know, because it, it actually kind of reminds me um, back to some other things we said. I think when the DevOps movement first started, it was a lot of yeah, it was a lot of people that you know um, knew just enough coding to stitch things together and could kind of figure things out. And I think that worked in some sense, but that seems to me like a big difference. What happened with site reliability engineering is like okay. Let's take a step back and let's treat this like you're actually building a product. Let's let's treat this with rigor. Let's treat this with process and and actually think about it end to end, which is a different skill set than you know. I learned a little coding on the weekend and I can make this you know you know I can tape it together with gum and sticks and whatever and it kind of works. So I, I think kind of putting a bow on this, I think this is you know was was it was super interesting and and um you know what I want to do with with each of you is kind of go around and I love to hear from all three of you about kind of where your mind's next. What are you thinking about that maybe not everybody else is thinking about? So JD, why don't we start with you? Sure. I'm thinking about next getting out of here and going to my lake place. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about. Like long-term for us, I mean, it, for us, it's it's really all about like automation and orchestration this year. And so that's what we're very focused on. I am thinking a lot about like this insider threat concept and, you know, how do I make sure that I keep a pulse on that? Because I do think that that's going to be a risk that's going to continue to rise. And so from a just delivery standpoint, very much focused on automation from a CISO risk perspective. I'm worried about the data that we have here at the organization and just internal people and threats related to that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. How about you, Terry? What are you thinking about? So the thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is, as you know, there's tons of breaches in the news all the time. And um, we have all this automation and we have all this data. And this even relates to SEMA logic, right? You have all this data around your processes, your automation, the cloud, really distilling that into what is the risk from all these different security problems that are existing in an environment. So having the guardrails, reporting on what people are doing that are creating risk. And then also, you know, who is, who's giving exceptions when these things are, you know, oh, it's okay to have that CVE that caused Equifax in the system. You know, when you get these exceptions, tracking that and then distilling that into reports that the highest level executives can understand and look at. My theory is they're looking at financials. Financials are not simple. You have to learn to read them. You have to learn to understand them. You have to learn to read and understand your security reports and take that risk into consideration. We have CEOs going up in front of testifying in front of Congress now, losing jobs, boards getting sued. And, you know, we've got legislation coming down because these things are not being handled appropriately. So I really have a strong feeling right now that a lot of there has to be a better way to do risk reporting up to the highest level and that they should get involved and understand what these risks are so they can evaluate them appropriately. Oh, that makes sense. Is it raining in Seattle this weekend or are you going to be able to go out and enjoy the weather? <laughs> it is <laughs> a little bit. It has I been nice. <laughs> now, now, George, I mean, I, I guess to start off with, when are you going to have a cool whiteboard behind you? Never. Like, I'm not that smart. I mean, and look, this is, this is the funny thing about me having to go last now. We had JD like talking about how she can't wait to get to the lake, Terry with her intellectual prowess over there and then now you got the lame guy going at the end and so no at least you're totally no no whiteboard for me (laughs) um but so so my things are a little different like i i look at pain points first so like the, the two main pain points that i foresee coming up for us are 
number one, multi-cloud security. You know, so we focused a lot of this conversation around AWS. I mean, I think all three of us are into AWS, but we're taking a very close look and probably launching into GCP this year. And so that adds a bunch of new challenges, you know, so one skill level, security, everything else that we talked about, we now have to bifurcate those efforts across multiple cloud providers. The other one too is what's killing us the most right now. I'm not going to say FedRAMP, JD. It's going to be privacy. Like privacy is slowing down our capability to do business so much, you know, with GDPR, CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, Illinois, New York, Australia, Brazil. How do we get our hands around that? So one of the things that we've done is we're working very closely with ISO, ISO 317 in particular, around a privacy by design program. We sit on the technical advisory group for it. So I'm hoping that we have this overarching privacy standard that can manage most of these individual groups because this is going to get ridiculous. Like like contracts have slowed down so much. I, and I guarantee you both of, of my peers on this call have seen that as well. It's slowed down business, you know, because everyone is just trying so hard to focus on these privacy regulations instead of trying to do best level of effort and do what's best to be able to do business together. It's never going to scale at this rate. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. So this morning, my senior vice president of research and development is a little bit of a jokester and he is dealing with a bunch of legal privacy requirements. And so he entered a JIRA ticket to our help desk that says he would just like to purchase Canada because he thinks it'll be easier that way. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And very relevant. I said, close, we'll not fix. <laughs> I don't know these. I think Canada's value is rising these days. You need to get you need to move quickly. They have Pepita, uh, though. They have Pepita, which well, is a privacy regulation that's a pain. <laughs> yeah. Pepita? Right. Uh, what does that stand for? <laughs> don't ask me that. I just know the acronym. <laughs> God. That's one of them. They'll know. <laughs> you know? But it is. It, it's So, interestingly enough, I was just in Canada last week, and we have Apita, which goes across most of, of Canada, but then BC on the western side, Vancouver, they have their own, you know? And so it's like, I think everyone is just trying to focus hard on individuality, which I would respect that. But again, when you're talking economies of scale, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep people from getting things done. And ultimately, this is the last thing I'll say about it before I get off my bandwagon, because we could do a whole session on this. A lot of the responsibilities on the consumer. Mm-hmm. Know what data you're giving mm-hmm. up. You know, like know what data you're passing and then hold vendors accountable or platforms accountable. Yeah. So we're, we're leaving on a note that you're expecting users to take care of their security. Yeah, totally. Uh... <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to come down to that one day. Yeah, you're right. You have to, you have to take some personal responsibility. Well, you know, all three of you, thank you so much for coming on. I, I think out of all of these, JD, I liked yours the best. I wish I had <laughs> to go too. to. That sounds nice. <laughs> I just want um, a bloody Mary right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, thank you, thank you all for coming on, and thank you for everybody that joined us live. And we will be posting this up so that you can uh, share it out and uh, look at it again. And everybody have a great weekend. Thanks you too. Thanks take everyone. Care. Really appreciate it. Nice job. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.